Good morning again. How are we doing? You guys are some real troopers. Four weeks of the fourth commandment, and we're going to do this intro twice. But um, thank you for being here. Um, and thank you for bearing with us as we plot our way through uh, the fourth commandment here. Um, today, um, let me just start by saying, uh, I had a, a professor one time say that, um, and I'm sure he was quoting someone else, that the Sabbath is like a beautiful park in the middle of a busy city that no one ever goes to. And I thought about that quite a bit, and the more I studied on the topic, uh, the more I thought he was right. Um, the packet that I had that I handed out today, I'm going to kind of cruise right over, skip right over the surface of it. I'm going to encourage you to read it uh, for yourself. It's really, um, it's really, it's, it's taken um, from a lecture from John Muther at RTS. Um, Reformed Theological Seminary. He gave this lecture in a course that I was uh, able to take, and um, I think it's a worthwhile reading. Uh, it'll give you a little bit more detail about the the more recent history um, of the Sabbath in American Protestantism, and I think it would give you a healthy perspective on where things have been and where they are today. Um, I'm just going to hit the highlights of it for you real quickly uh, so Mark can finish with a few important things. Um, are you a Sabbatarian? That's the question. And if you would have asked me this question before I studied this material, I would have had a hard time answering it. What does that mean exactly? Um, you know, really, some would say that this is a secret weapon for spiritual growth. The Sabbath is not in terms of the fact that it's secret and no one knows about it, but that it's largely been forgotten. And, you know, to the, a couple of the ideas that we may have in our minds about the Sabbath that kind of hold us back from that is this idea that it's a grim practice. You know, you go back to the con this concept of uh, strict Sabbatarianism and uh, ideas of, the pur of Puritan overreach and things like that. Um, there's even a, a story, and it's not... But we don't think it's true, or most don't think it's true, but it's a story that was passed around for years at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. And these may be names that you may or may not have heard of, but they were these were big uh, personalities, big uh, people who were really involved in the seminary in its early stages. Um, one professor, Ned Stonehouse, who's a founding member uh, of Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, had passed away, and his wife, she was frantic, she found him passed away on a Sunday, and uh, she called, the first person she could think of was a neighbor of theirs, a fellow professor at the university, um, Dr. John Murray, and John Murray came over to the house, and the first thing he did, she forgot to turn the TV off, and the, he had been watching the Eagles game, and the first thing that Dr. Murray said, what, did was to reprove her for having the Eagles game on on the Sabbath, and it, <laughs> And it's an, supposed to be an apocryphal story, but you never know. But um, that kind of that kind of um, of a thought is something that sometimes comes across our mind. Um, H. O. mentioned um, he was a columnist in the early 20th century. He had, he wrote a phrase you may have heard of: "A Puritan is a person that is haunted by the fear that somewhere someone may be having fun." <laughs> and uh, 
that's kind of the, it, you know, uh, when I think of the not-so-healthy side of the Puritans, uh, my mind goes there. Um, I think of the other side of the spectrum, too, but that, that may be part of what we think. Another thing is it's an extreme practice, like a long list of do's and don'ts. And, and to be sure, you know, the, the, ten, the fourth commandment is a commandment, and there are aspects of it in which there are to do and, and, and to don't, but we need to be careful, obviously, in the way we approach this. Um, I've heard, you know, you, you hear people on both ends of the spectrum. Uh, they would say, uh, they would argue for what you can almost call Sabbath inertia, which means, you know, basically the best thing you can do on the Sabbath is to do nothing. Um, you know, and then there's others who would argue, well, for Sabbath, Sabbath idleness, you know, look, read the Westminster Confession, the Westminster Standards, and against, you know, the issue of idleness and think, well, uh, you know, uh, that, that that's not the way to go. Uh, well, what is the proper sense of Christian duty? Since it is a commandment, we do have a duty. Um, you know, I think if we get all, if we start to think um, of the Sabbath in terms of what I can and can't do, we really kind of gotten off to the wrong foot. It's really the wrong way to think. Um, we had to think. Uh, I think I mentioned this before in a, in a previous um, session. Duty and blessing are together. Um, Sabbath duty and Sabbath blessing are, are together. Um, the duty is always coextensive with the blessing. You can't really take on duty unless it's located properly in the context of the blessing. And uh, this is what we miss. It's the blessing that God intends for His people. Um, we also have uh, confusion about the Westminster Standards themselves when we refer to them. You know, in terms of word count, and I know word count's not everything, but in terms of word count, really the Fourth Commandment is not, it's not the most... Uh, uh, written about in the Westminster Standards. The 10th would actually come before it, and um, not that word counts everything, but I think that's important to note. And another reason is that maybe we kind of tend to think that this is kind of old covenant ago, right? I mean, isn't this really tied up with, you know, primarily the Mosaic Covenant? Well, like we've studied in the past um, few weeks, um, the Sabbath concept itself, and in, in terms for the Christian Sabbath, the Lord's Day that we celebrate, uh, extends way beyond that, back to Genesis 2. Uh, and so uh, there's a sense in which uh, we miss that. You know, certainly the ceremonial aspects of the law that were attendant to the, ten, you know, to the Mosaic Covenant are passed, but the moral aspects of that uh, persist, and we need to be mindful of that. Um, a quick, uh, just a quick touch on the history of um, the Sabbath in American evangelicalism. Think back to, um, for me, it's kind of, it was kind of easy to think back to this period of time as I grew up in Salisaw, Oklahoma, which is just west of Fort Smith, Arkansas, kind of the, the last bastion of the, of the, where East met West, and uh, think of uh, hanging Judge Parker and all the U.S. Marshals in Indian Territory. Um, when you think about that period of time, the 19th century, um, there was a kind of a, the, the, the phrase that was known among those in the East was that the land beyond the Mississippi was the land beyond the Sabbath. It was that big of a deal. It was a chief symbol uh, where there was no Sabbath, there was no Christian faith. And um, it was almost a universal concept. The Sabbath was so highly regarded and so strictly adhered to by almost all Protestants, regardless, especially the Presbyterians. It was a huge thing. It was almost universal. And obviously that began to wane over time. 
Uh, we saw the, you see the rise and fall of the Sabbath with um, uh, initially with the rise of these volunteer societies. You had like the Abolition Society, um, the American Sabbath School Union, the American Temperance League, the American Bible Society, the Lord's Day Alliance. All of these institutions were kind of developed by what we would say would be the, the uh, cultural elite of the time, and that, were, that was largely rural, Protestant, evangelical, um, uh, English-speaking people. And um, they felt a threat. Uh, they felt the threat from you know, the rise of urbanization, industrialization, immigration. You see them actually invoking the powers of the state and the formation of these blue laws. You can't buy and sell alcohol on Sundays. You can't do this on Sundays. They built a hedge to try to protect what they considered to be the um, moral pulse of the, of the country, of the nation, as it was changing, its demographics were changing. And uh, one, one historian put it this way, the proper observation of the Sabbath was considered to be the most essential element in the maintenance of morals and therefore the preservation of the nation. Um, but like uh, Lee, Cor Lee Corso tells Kirk Herbstreet, uh, not so fast, not so fast, my friend. Um, for you football fans. Um, so while we might want to call this the Puritan Sabbath, really what it was is a Victorian Sabbath. And, um, and what I mean by that is it was a symbol of middle-class Protestant respectability, less of an expression of devotion to God and more of an expression of virtuous citizenry, almost parallel to what we would say church attendance at, at large was what, in the 70s, 80s, early 90s until it became socially unprofitable and the church began to decline in many areas. So it was actually used as a, an instrument of social control. This is kind of the dark underside of this. Um, we want to be careful. You know, I talked before about the use of the Ten Commandments in public schools. Uh, this is part of that. And uh, if you were a young Jewish uh, boy or girl or a young um, Roman Catholic or Lutheran boy or girl and you had been taught the Ten Commandments, and likely you were, and uh, you would know these are they're kind of structured differently and taught differently than what we were used to. And this was a not-so-subtle uh, uh, statement that uh, you're, you're not in control here. We are. This is our country. You're going to assimilate, and uh, we set the rules. And that's kind of a, a not-so-healthy side of the history of this. Um, so... These uh, increased immigration from Eastern Europe of Jew Jewish, Catholic, and Lutheran uh, people. Um, you've got the established uh, ruling, so Protestant uh, evangelical class uh, trying to maintain uh, control. Um, uh, I, I even saw, I thought this is interesting. You ever know or ever wonder why they call Notre Dame the Fighting Irish? Um, it comes from this period of time, actually, because Catholic boys and uh, uh, Catholic boys were enlisting and dying in American wars in disproportionate numbers, and Catholic mothers and fathers were so eager to send their children to war to prove that they were good Americans. This is one of the ways in which Protestants were exerting or exercising a subtle form of social control. Um, so the point is this: um, there's a subtle dark side we need to be mindful of. So recovering the Sabbath, that was then, this is now. What's happened since then? How did it end? Um, well, the church basically stopped talking about it. Um, there were no redemptive historical studies on the Sabbath, which is what we've been doing 
the last four sessions, um, going through the course of biblical history and looking at the development of this doctrine and how it kind of makes sense for us today. Um, you know, Coney Island came, another weekend resorts, the Sunday paper came, uh, professional baseball, eventually professional football. Um, all these things, these pressures of secularization, pluralization, early 20th century, put pressure on the church. Um, sociologist Bentley Johnson noted that the Puritan standards of conduct were belittled in the press and popular culture on the stage and in the movies. They were under attack. Um, and the, iron the irony of it is that despite the efforts of those kind of in, uh, in control culturally, um, to try to force the people around at large to assimilate to their values. It was actually the church that assimilated to the values of the world and slowly withdrew their staunch position on the Sabbath. Um, so uh, how should this look today? Um, well, America is not the new Jerusalem. Culture wars are over. Um, we, so to speak, lost. Um, American life today is life in Babylon. A good one, but it's Babylon, right? Um, so, <clears throat> um, you know, we need to seek to make a better Babylon in order to estate, not, not to establish a new Jerusalem, so to speak, but to make a better Babylon in order uh, to aid the establishment of the outward peace of our city. Why? So that we can live and witness to the Christian faith in faithful and obedient ways. Um, it's to help us reinforce a culture of resistance. We're a countercultural people. Um, one sociologist, Peter Berger, had mentioned what he calls plausibility structures. It's things that, you know, um, adherent Jews and Catholics, even and when they came here, um, they were mindful to do things to help them maintain the structure and the integrity of their belief system. These plausibility structures, they can be like kosher diets or attending weekly mass or saying the rosary. There were communally, communally held practices um, that helped them um, keep from eroding under the influence of modern culture. And um, you know, the Sabbath for Reformed Christians is very similar in what it can do for us. Um, <clears throat> so it's a countercultural conviction and a countercultural practice when they're together they become mutually reinforcing we have a countercultural conviction um, summed up nicely in the Westminster standards but the things that we believe and we need to have corresponding practices that help us to to firmly establish those into our lives and it helps to help, uh, help us uh, to form community um, a confession of faith is not reinforced with practices that undergird that faith as a conviction that produces an identity that is fragile and incoherent and almost impossible to pass on to our children and grandchildren. You want to know what one of the weak, main weaknesses of the mainline traditional Protestant churches have been? Is their failure to be able to pass this type of thing on. They lose the gospel and they lose this sense of identity and connectedness between belief and practice. And it's almost impossible to pass anything of substance on. Um, so in conclusion, I'm going to make the, we're, we are a pilgrim people. We're still on the way. Remember, we talked about the already not yet aspect of the reality of our position in time and history uh, in Christ. And um, we're looking forward. We're a pilgrim people. We're not yet in the um, promised land of the consummated kingdom. We're still on the way. 
Um, and we refuse to assimilate to the agenda of the world. Um, so there's a lot of things here you can read, uh, and I encourage you to do that on the clarity of the Sabbath, things about to do and to do not. I just, um, just remember that this is a pilgrim Sabbath. It's a symbol of our heavenly citizenship, a sign of our true and only hope, and it becomes a subversive tool. It challenges the idols of our age. Um, are you a Sabbatarian? Uh, do you believe that we're headed for a better world? If so, you are. Um, we're not obsessed with the question of what I can or can't do. We're truly the question of what else would I want to do? What else should I want to do? Um, and obviously we want to avoid the threat of legalism. This is really a call to freedom. And the things that we would consider to be in the, in, in, in the right would be corporate worship, reading the scriptures, prayer, singing psalms and hymns, meditating upon Christ, fellowshipping with the body of Christ, visiting the sick and attending the needs of others to help us celebrate Christ's work. So really anything that might distract us from our worship would be of concern. And uh, anything, if we would say, if we say this, hey, if I can only get done with this in order to go do that, that would be a problem. Um, but I thank you. Uh, I'll leave you the very last page of this. Hopefully you'll go back and read this. I think this is kind of interesting. I found this this week. The Presbyterian Holy Days. Anybody ever seen that? And it's the very last page. Take a look at that and see what you think. What well, pops off the page. I'll leave you with red. Thanks, Jeff. Um, you may not know this, but it's a real treat to have uh, Jeff teaching, going through this. Uh, he is fresh in seminary, and so he's getting to read all of the uh, most recent stuff. Um, when I was in St. Louis, the largest attended Protestant service was Saturday night. I had a friend who, uh, about Tammy's age, went to Baylor University, and she said on Sundays in the cafeteria you had to dress up because you wanted everybody to think you had gone to church. <laughs> so there was that pressure, you know, 30 <laughs> years ago or so. Um, our God has made us. There is a power in our habits that uh, transform us. In our small group, we're reading through... Uh, um, James Smith, uh, You Are What You Love, and he is big on this idea of cultural liturgies, and you need really go no further than the mall or any kind of sporting event, and you see these cultural liturgies. You sing the same songs, you wear the same clothes, um, you, you know, it, 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 it transforms what we love, and the, the, the Sabbath at Three Rivers um, is what Jeff asked me to to talk about. Um, and I want to say a couple things. I think the first four commandments are the easiest for us to break. I think, I think we treat the first four uh, really as we're under grace now. And so it doesn't matter to God anymore. Um, think about if we treated the other six like we do the first four. Thou shalt not murder. Well, we're under grace. 
<laughs> you know, uh, don't bear false witness. Oh, but you know, Jesus came and, and he's not going to kill us for fudging the truth here a little, right? But for some reason, and, and it has been this gradual decline, and that, that's what happens to Christians. Uh, that's what happens when a, when a great awakening comes through. You see a, an increased attendance, what Jeff has pointed out, with um, wealth. When I, when I planted in California, I ordered this demographic study where you, you, you put a, a, a point on the map and they do a five and a ten mile radius. And it, it shows family size, income, all various things, religious activity. And uh, there were clear uh, overlays. And so I had the, the map of our, of our target spot in Los Angeles, and then I put over it the, the, the color of uh, affluence. And uh, I think poor families were in red and wealth were in blue and something like that. So you put it over there and it coincided, and then you took the average church attendance and it almost was the same. Uh, just this stark contrast. Uh, people that are poor don't travel, but also I think people that are poor uh, feel more of a sense of need. Uh, I think wealth can tend to shield us from our deeper needs. It, it tends to give us some sense of security. It gives us a sense of standing in, in community and freedom. Um, I, I put in your packet Leviticus 24. It's an amazing scene in, in Leviticus chapter 4. There is a woman, uh, an Israelite woman whose son fights with an Egyptian. Right? And the Israelite's woman's son, they're, they're fighting in camp, and the, uh, the Egyptian blasphemes the name of the Lord. Now, uh, the authorities come and get the, the boy and the man, and you would think in our society that the authorities would come and say, what were you guys fighting about? Who started it? Uh, no, that, that's, not even, <laughs> that's not even mentioned in it. It's not even like you shouldn't fight. You shouldn't. No, what, what is important is that the Egyptian man blasphemed. Now, again, it's Old Testament, and... Uh, we don't have time to, to talk about um, uh, what is it when you uh, uh, Rush Dooney, what's that called? His, his theology of the law. Theonomy. Yeah, we don't have to talk about theonomy. Like we're not as a church called kind of to return us back to that of, of flogging and stoning. But we do see something about the character of our God in this, don't we? He cares about his name. And he wants all the people that witness it to be there. I hold my name as high. It's so important, not just for this person, but for our community. And then what he makes the community do, he makes the, those who heard take stones and stone that person. Same thing happens in Numbers 15. I didn't print that out for you, but um, there was a man gathering sticks. He gets called into the authorities. Um, now, this Thursday... Uh, last yeah, last Thursday was uh, Chismar's anniversary. Is that date important to y'all? Mostly, mostly to Justin. <laughs> you know who else's anniversary was? Kuiper's anniversary, right? Pops up on there. There's a date. There, it's it's important, um, and and it, it it means something. It is significant. We are a people of time. We are a people in, in a planet that has a year, and so um, the the people of God were released in order to worship. You get that? In, in Egypt, when he goes and sees Pharaoh, he says, God says, let him go so they can worship me. And what does he do? He makes their job busier. 
He, he creates a, a work environment that demands, and, and God, God releases them so that they may go worship Him. So it's interesting, when someone is ordained in the PCA, they ask us to take vows according to uh, the standards of the church and the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, and its catechisms are one of our standards, and Jeff mentioned that. I printed some of it in your handout. I, I uh, wrote in bold uh, chapter 6, 7, and 8 of the, of the Lord's Day. Um, I'm not going to read those for you, but they're, they're in there. And um, you are allowed as a minister, well, you're, you have to as a minister, um, or if you're ordained as an elder, uh, you have to uh, come, come clean with any exceptions that you have. Do you have any exceptions to the standards? And the reason being is we've, we have an outside body that is, that is helping to govern our churches and to make sure uh, that the people they ordain um, view Scripture rightly, view theology rightly. But almost every person uh, has a exception to Sabbath, and and usually it's the catech- it's a catechism question uh, uh, question one seventeen. How is it to be sanctified? So if you want to flip to that and look at that, that's the one I took an exception to. Uh, Jake did not take an exception to it, but I do think he's mowed his yard on the Sabbath. So, uh, um, right. I, I invited a guest preacher in Tupelo, and I said, you want to go out to lunch with my, my wife and I after church? And they said, that, that, I said, you, would you like to have lunch with my wife and I? He said, sure, that'd be great. I said, well, we go to McAllister's. And he's like, oh, so you don't keep the Sabbath. Um, and, and so I don't want to brush over this. You guys know my kids played sports. My boys were big into football, basketball, volleyball. Um, Football had workouts on Sundays. Um, I, ex- I expressed to my boys, we went through this together, we talked about it, we prayed about it. Um, when they were little, I didn't let them do their homework on the Lord's Day. Um, I said, as long as I'm in control, I said, now, football, is that a relaxing thing? Is that, you know, and, and one boy decided, you know, Dad, just like you like to get on your bike and go for a ride on a Sabbath and enjoy creation and you find that restful I find my workouts like that and the other one's like no way <laughs> I'm staying home um, I, I, I really do encourage you to consider this like you would the other commandments there is a blessing for us and there's a blessing in, in habits habits will form us those things you do consistently you want to be a merciful person start showing acts of mercy you want to be a generous person Start by being generous, and I trust the Lord will change your person in so doing. But question 117 says how to be sanctified, and the answer is says Sabbath day is sanctified by a holy resting all day, not only from such works as are at times sinful, but even from such worldly employments and recreations as are on other days lawful, and is making it our delight to spend the whole time, except so much of it as to be taken up in works of necessity and mercy, in public and private exercise of God's worship. And to that end, we are to prepare our hearts with such foresight, diligence, and moderation to dispose and seasonally dispatch our worldly business that we may be more free and fit for the duties of that day. I printed Isaiah 58, and it really, for me, has been the guiding text 
just personally for me. It's been the guiding text of Sabbath ob observation. My kids, uh, my kids loved the Sabbath. They, they loved the Sabbath. Uh, I did everything in my power to make it a day that was delightful for them. Uh, it was special food. It was special time. It was sleeping in. I didn't, if, if they hadn't done their chores by Saturday night, I didn't make them do them on Sunday. Um, it, it became to us that way because it wasn't that way for me. So as Jeff described, the, kind of the puritanical Victorian Sabbath, that's how I grew up. Um, it, we had to be quiet and solemn the entire day. Uh, I was not allowed to go outside and shoot baskets. I was not allowed to go. We had a pond. I couldn't go fish in the pond. Um, and, and it was a burden to me. I didn't delight in the Lord during those moments. Um, but uh, your observation of the Sabbath, um, we, have, we have become so free with it. And, and, it, and it just it's tough. Like I, I, I had people tell me in, in St. Louis, uh, the Roman Catholic Church, their attendance on Saturday night because soccer was huge, you know, all day Sunday, soccer, you know, families in soccer. And um, they're like, you know, if you guys went Saturdays, I could make it. And um, I don't know if I was just being an old guy or not, but I just thought, how wonderful would it be for the leagues to have to change? <laughs> you know, and uh, how we spend our time it, it does show what's important. So at the end, I, I put, here are, the, here are the three rivers. Um, we unabashedly promote that the worship of our God, it, it, it is to direct all of life. The movement to the first day of the week, some people question that, but there is no account of the apostles saying you shouldn't have done that. Right? They're all in agreement throughout the book of Acts that worship being moved to the first day of the week uh, as, as a celebration of the resurrection of Christ. Um, and so we preach and teach that the worship of God is to be the most important thing in your life. And, and even as we put our service together, the, the question really isn't, did our kids like it? Did we like it? But did we honor our God and what we brought before Him? Um, did we follow his uh, examples and his instruction? It's to be a day of rest. So you'll notice at Three Rivers, we don't have meetings on Sundays. We don't have like Sunday school meeting, officers meeting. Hey, they're Christians, so they're not working. So, hey, we can, we can get everybody to come over and do this. Um, you'll find that our Sunday morning at Sunday school, it's worship. And, and then I expect you to rest and take it as this wonderful gift of our God. I will trust God my God with my business. I will trust my God with my studies. I will trust my God that he will take care of me. And, and I, will, I will take it um, and a delight. Um, and that's, that's our hope. I would also say, um, as I put in the very top of mine, the Sabbath rest is the fruit of idol smashing. I want you to think about that. A Sabbath rest is the fruit of idol smashing. I will not be controlled by anything outside of my God. And as a such, I'll take a Sabbath with him and I will rest. Um, it's not easy to do. It's not easy to do even as a pastor. Um, and, and our God says, test him. 
in this. And you remember when this came out, this culture, and Jeff, you probably talked about this, but they were, uh, they were an agrarian culture. You know, all their neighbors were working seven days a week, sun up to sundown. And God said, trust me in this um, and see if I will not open the floodgates of heaven. Uh, any questions? That was, that was quick and fast. All right, let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you, Father, for the Sabbath. The word says that the land needed Sabbath, and that the people profaned it. And more and more they worked harder and harder and harder, and they got less and less. And you sent your prophets to tell your people. You remember those days when, when you took the Sabbath rest and you had an abundance. And more and more you fashioned your life and your schedule and your work after the nations around you. And you worked harder and showed less. Lord, these are the gracious things that you do to your people to tell us that you are the Father who supplies. You are the Father who cares. You're the Father who builds a house for us. You're the Father who builds us with the manna from your word. Father, we pray that our uh, conviction would be right and true. And not just Sabbath days, but every day, uh, Father, would be lived for your glory. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.